Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Now your host, Jason Miller. Welcome to the show. Today we're talking about cybersecurity, specifically a new approach to honeypots. My guest is Vincent Urias, a distinguished member of the technical staff at Sandia National Laboratories. Uh, Vince, let me just start with some of the basics. Uh, Sandia National Lab is launching or has launched a program called Hades, great name, High Fidelity Adaptive Deception and Emulation System. What is Hades about? Hades was an outgrowth of uh, a need. It was a research effort that started a couple years ago trying to focus on how do we actually interact with adversaries. You know, in a lot of ways to date, what happens in operational systems is a machine is compromised, we pull the plug, and essentially do forensics. Well, I think because of the world we're moving into today, things are very adaptive, adversaries are very intelligent, uh, operations are uh, happening very quickly. So as a consequence, me, Will Stout, and Caleb Bavaro said, hey, are there any better ways of interacting with the adversaries. So there's a couple other things that were happening at the same time, right? This is a couple of years ago, you saw virtualization becoming more and more prevalent within the infrastructure, and you saw software-defined networking also becoming more uh, prevalent within the infrastructure. So we said, hey, could we leverage these few things that are changing to help the defender actually defend the network better? So uh, we said, could we create a better deceptive environment to say, could we look at what the adversaries are doing, understanding how they're doing it, understand what their tools are so we can then create both environments to entice adversaries and then secondarily to learn about them so we can better protect our networks. So at, at the crux, uh, it is a uh, really threat intelligence platform that is tailored to specific environments. Now, it sounds to me a little bit like a honeypot. Is it more than a honeypot? Yeah. So we actually went down this path for uh, a while, which was, well, well, what's the issue with honeypots today? Well, honeypots are very static, right? Imagine if you were an intelligent adversary, you landed a box and everything was the same, right? There's no historical information and what I call the lived-in feel, right? The identity of the person, browser history, document history, all the things that define a person. If you land a box that has been up for two hours that has the same homogenous infrastructure, right? You're, you're not really interested in that, right? You know that it looks fake. Well, we said, could we, we did a lot of work over the last 15 years on emulation and a lot of other work, and we said, could we take all those things to create better, more interesting, more faithful environments where adversaries could uh, land and say, hey, this looks interesting. Is there better data in here? Can I get more user information? Can I uh, look throughout the network and see what else might be there of interest? So really, the other part is uh, honeypots also suffer from the fact that there's really no way to actually pull information in a real-time fashion, right? If you look at all the things that are out there, it's very much like, hey, we're going to tell you a couple of things, but we wanted, we wanted everything. Pull all that information so we as defenders could pull out critical information in real time. Vince, that's interesting. So, so you're, you're doing more than just a stack. This is almost a dynamic approach, as you said, uh, as I read through it, using SDN virtualization. So if, if you can walk me through, what's the difference between, for instance, the real network and the fake one, or the more faithful one, I think is the word you use, that the adversary is in, like, how do you protect the real data versus, but give them access and, and be able to watch them in real time without worrying about the, the valuable data that Sandia or whichever, whoever's using this has? A lot of the crux of the technology is that we're able, uh, through the SDN fabric and virtualization fabric, we're able to actually move 
virtual machines to a completely isolated environment that could have completely synthetic things. And what I mean by that, imagine if you had a laptop that was plugged in in one part of the network and we just like moved you to an isolated network that may have a full rich set of services that was not real but looked real to you. Right, we're able to do that with virtual machines. We, if an adversary was on the machine through the SDN fabric, we can move them, and we can move the state of the virtual machine, e.g. the memory and the disk, into another space, and then let them play the game, right? And a lot of what we do is sort of in, in three components, right? Uh, one of which is making the environment look as lived in as possible. So we have a lot of special sauce around making all the virtual machines within the environment look like a, a tailored environment for you. So if you were doing uh, Organization X and you were very interested in research and Organization Y that was very interested in engineering practices, and then, uh, we could create and tailor those applications, that browser history, that document history, the user's identities, the domain identities, all the things that you would see in a normal enterprise. We can synthetically create the traffic and the environment to look like that. But on top of that, we also have the instrumentation, right? I think a lot of it is pulling the data that we have in real time from there. And then, and to your point, how do you know that valuable information is not getting moved from your network, right? So that, that virtual machine that may have been compromised may have lots of stuff, right? During the movement, since we're able to actually watch what's going on on the host, we can actually protect information in a real-time fashion through the hypervisor to say, hey, you know, these 15 things that you may want to read, we're going to give you a different file in real time, right? If I'm looking for a PDF on an engineering document, I may give you just an open source piece of information just because I know that's highly protected and highly sensitive, or like a SAM file, right, which gives the identity of the organization and authentication. We can actually just give you a full SAM file in real time. That's obviously that's, that's a pretty cool trick because you know you're able to then to to understand where they're coming in from, close those holes as well, or or at least put up new barriers or obstacles to make it harder to get into the holes. And then even once they're in, you're seeing wh what they're doing, how they're hopping, or how they're moving. So you've been working on this for this idea of based on SDNs and based on virtualization, you're able to kind of take advantage of. This. How did this? develop over time. Walk me through maybe a little bit of the history. You started how and, and then where you're at today. This was a research effort, right? And uh, me and Will and Caleb all represent different themes of things. So here at the labs, we've done a lot of emulation for test evaluation for about 15 years. So we built a lot of environments for folks to do testing and training and lots of fun stuff. And we said, hey, we're, we're, we're spending a lot of time building these synthetic environments in a very quick fashion. There's a cool tool chain around that. Could we apply it to network defense? And uh, some of us here were network defenders for a period of time and helped defend the network. And we said, hey, how do we – right, we, we've seen a lot of threats evolve over the last few years. And we said, could we start looking at ways to change the asymmetric conversation between us and the adversary, right? A lot of the adversary today – is very much focused on breaking a window and, and we as defenders have to like defend the entire house, right? So we said, could we essentially create fake houses, right? How do we introduce doubt into the adversary, right? And they're exploiting the fact that we have homogenous environments, right? For business practices, we build very similar look and feel environments, right? We do common IT infrastructure, we do common operating system configuration, common patch levels, all those things, right? So it's expected to have that, and they're expected to sort of uh, have to navigate that network. So we stood this up and said, hey, 
Will Stout did some great work on the SDN side and said, hey, we can migrate these networks. We can synthetically create these networks. We can start doing deep pack inspection on east, west, and north, south traffic in real-time fashion. And then Caleb came on and said, hey, what if we had the ability to actually watch them, right? And that's that's the other key piece is I'm, we, we, we feel like we should be able to interact with them actively as well as learn about them actively, right? This should not be a forensics investigation. We shouldn't have to sit on this box and say, well, they've compromised a thousand things, let's figure out what they did. Rather, let's look at what they're dropping on the system. Let's look at their tools and memory. Let's carve all those things out, give them to great folks on instant response teams of these organizations so they can then say, let's hunt throughout our network and partner networks and find that data and see if they've been anywhere else. So that was the genesis, was a lot of just like combining technology and thought process, and then really a lot of operational need that we've seen from the community and saying, could we help them and help the environments and the folks in a, in, in a better fashion? So I have to ask, when you talk about building synthetic environments, anything you're able to talk about, anything kind of cool, interesting, different? So we've done a lot of work on building lots of stuff. Will and I and Caleb have built, um, there's a couple papers, so I can reference these easily, a lot of SCADA infrastructure, so OT, critical infrastructure, ICS. We've done a lot of that over the last few years. That's been a lot of fun. Uh, we do large ranges, so one of our tests, we built out uh, an environment of seventy or 80,000 Windows hosts that have lots of fun things in it. Um, that was a lot of fun. But a lot of it is, like, I think the correlation, just booting an environment's not sufficient, but it's actually booting the environment, collecting the data, and analyzing it, right? We don't just build networks for networks' sake. It's really to build networks to understand something, and we do a lot of work on uh, network configurations and uh, resiliency and failover and lots of other fun stuff. See, I, I went right to, when you talk about synthetic environments and, and ranges, I'm thinking like, you know, shooting ranges or, you know, bombing <laughs> ranges. I went right, I went down the wrong path probably. You, no, no, uh, very similar, right? In the cyber world, if you're a defender, you need the same thing, right? You need a shooting range to like learn how to defend against these things. Well, the canonical in the cyber world is really these synthetic environments, right? You want to learn about configuration and about appliances and devices and, and policy and uh, intelligence in, in a safe fashion, right? You don't want to do that in an operational world, right? It's like, do I want to fix the wing of a plane in flight? Probably a bad idea, right? So you want to actually do this in an in, in environment that is synthetic and lets you sort of be creative and lets you fail. That's actually why a lot of these things are built. Um, there's a lot of work, that, prior work that we did in the testing and training environment just for folks, right? Uh, a lot of cyber is actually art at this point still, Exposure therapy is what I call it, right? Exposing them to threats and things. So we build all these environments out so folks can learn. So uh, very much canonical to, to the shooting range. We have to take a break. My guest is Vincent Urias, a distinguished member of the technical staff at Sandia National Laboratories. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Vincent Urias, a distinguished member of the technical staff at Sandia National Laboratories. Where are you guys today with Hades? Is it being used in production? Is it still a test? And where do you see this going? We have this conversation again, I know, three, six, nine months from now. We're working with other organizations, but, you know, uh, the fact that people are running deception environments is somewhat sensitive. So the future for us, I think, is looking for other partners in other spaces to say, could we continue testing? And uh, I think the TRL level of this is in, I think it's fairly mature. There's still some work to be done in sort of the UI and other things, but a lot of the core technologies have been proven to be stable in 
uh, a lot of different tests. So, and, and that actually yeah. brings me down that path is how have you tested it? How do you know this works? Because obviously on the paper, right, you and I talking about it, this sounds excellent. You're really excited about it. But how have you tested it? Can you talk through that? Yeah, I think the easiest ones we can talk about are very much focused on crimeware examples. So, right, you get all, uh, let's just talk about some innocuous examples that are, are very tangible, right? So uh, I'm guessing at home or at work, you get all these weird spear phishing attacks that say, hey, the Nigerian print scam or, uh, hey, click this link if you want to win a million dollars, right? All these things exist every day. So we started like harvesting these things and saying, let's just, instead of deleting the email or sending a spam folder, let's just start clicking the link, right, on these very innocuous things, and seeing how far we can get. And we had a lot of fun with that, right? We, we clicked the link, we saw some crimeware, we dropped some folks who were dropping payloads to say, hey, let me try to harvest your Gmail information, all your usernames, passwords. We had some interesting users uh, try to look for things like uh, IRS information. So that's a lot of where we started testing this was very much in the, uh, the crimeware space, right? Folks who were just trying to steal your PII, steal things from you that were very generic, but it allowed us to prove out the tool chains, and the analytics, the response pipeline, the synthetic creation pipeline, and actually let let us do interesting things without too much stress. And then so, everything else is a little bit harder to talk about. <laughs> well, that was, probably, yeah, that was probably the next question. Is, is So did you find that, as with any sort of research effort, you had some uh, one step forward, half a step back, two step forward, three steps back? What was the give and take that you saw, and, and how, how did this, effort Hades change over time? That's a very interesting question because a lot of it was back and forth, right? The adversaries are smart, so you're like, hey, I'm going to look for this piece of information, adversaries do something else, right? So a lot of it has been an evolution in both the sensing and the ability for us to provision more interesting things, right? Uh, again, exposure therapy, right? Being exposed to different adversaries and different uh, folks in the crime space, we see that they're interested in different things. So as we see more of those things, uh, critical services, document types, a handful of other things, we create all those things, and then we play the game over and over, right? I think that's the evolution for us has just been this iterative thing where we see something and we're like, oh, I wish I could get encrypted keys for memory because they're doing uh, encrypted sessions out of our uh, protected boundary. Well, that would be cool. We should build things to co collect TLS keys without them knowing. Or uh, we see that they drop and create encrypted file systems. Maybe we should have some tools to actually look inside those encrypted file systems without them knowing. And that's sort of what it's been is very much a testament to the platform's flexibility, uh, being able to say, you know, the creativity of, of, of the three folks in, in, in that helped create it, saying, hey, we should think about creative ways of looking at that data. And then uh, the other half has been, well, how do you present that to the analyst, right? You're looking at gobs and gobs and gobs of data. How do you create analytics? How do you represent the data, common information? And uh, that's a lot of where we used Splunk, right, was we had these immense amounts of uh, data sets that came from all these things, and we pulled uh, and onboarded all these diverse data sets, binaries, physical information, operating system information, uh, system logs, networking logs, all into a common space. And then we create a lot of dashboards to help people look through things, create a common information model so people can pivot off of that. And that's that's been uh, hugely successful. Actually, you started to kind of address my next question, which is uh, where does Splunk fit into this? So for, for the most part, was Splunk the data analytics data platform, or did they provide you with more than just that? For us, it was the data analytics uh, data platform and allowing us to express our 
data needs, right? They, it allowed us to do onboarding. It allowed us to do correlation. Uh, it allowed us to build real-time causal relationships, right? That was in a matter of days, right, being able to say, hey, I'm going to onboard this stuff and this stuff and this stuff, and then just give it to some folks who were not necessarily Splunk users, but say, hey, what would you do with this data, right? And the other part of that is looking at tools that are commonly used by analysts in different organizations. It sort of was that common look and feel to help them navigate the data and say, here's a lot of things that might be useful to you. Was there other tools or other partners you were able to maybe talk to a little bit? I mean, was this done mostly in-house or was this done with uh, other agencies, other vendors, other academic institutions, you know, FFRGCs and the like? Everything else was 100% internally developed, right? I think we have a I think we were a little bit ahead, right? A lot of this research started in 2013. We were a lot, we were ahead in a lot of different spaces, and we just sort of plowed ahead. So uh, all the VMI work, all the SDN work, all the networking work, all the infrastructure and uh, uh, environment automation work was all internally developed. From a cost standpoint, is, is there anything you can talk to around the cost to develop this, or is there anything, if, if I'm an agency listening to this and I want to call you up and say, Vince, can I borrow it? Can I have it? Can I... Can I beg, borrow, and steal it from you? Is it Would there be a cost that you can talk to? A lot of what we've been looking at for at least governmental agencies is we, we realize that each government agency is different. So uh, we created a flexible platform that can work on a single, you know, a single blade, single server, all the way to tens of hundreds of servers. So depending on what you're trying to do and the, the lar- how, how large your organization is, so that's really the cost is the infrastructure cost for the blades and then the analysis cost, right, is – uh, folks to actually look at the data, but a lot of what we're trying to do is help protect uh, government networks. So uh, we're always looking for uh, interesting partners and trying to help them out, look for interesting use cases. It's always nice to hear. Uh, any discussions yet with, and I'm not sure how much you can talk to this, but uh, I'll throw it out there, uh, Homeland Security Department and their you know, cybersecurity group or the FBI or even some of the DOD folks, any of those discussions happening yet? To sort of broadly answer that question, right, other agencies, we brief in lots of different spaces. Um, there have been other organizations who have been highly interested in this, and that's as much as I can say at the moment. But there have been a lot of folks who see the value in it. I think that's great. I think just the fact is that there is other interest that you guys are having conversations. I think w- w- one of the biggest challenges with anything around specifically cyber, but also anything when it comes to in- intergovernmental relations, is, is just ensuring that, that people know who's doing what, and they could borrow or beg or steal from it, right? So uh, I appreciate that. You, you, I understand your, your sensitivity to it, but I appreciate the fact you're able to at least open up that little bit about it. I guess one last thing that kind of comes to mind as I'm walking through this is the results. And, and I know it's still early. I know this has been in kind of the test phase for a while, and it was kind of in the pilot stage. But generally speaking, without getting into obviously the bits and the bytes of the results, are you finding obviously this works? And, and how does it work, and, and like, how, how are you measuring the success of this, of this program project? We'll stay in the open use cases, right, things like Crimeware and other things of that sort of ilk. Those have been highly successful, and the ways that we've been measuring it are looking at the amount of time the users and this are interacting with the system. We've seen an uptick as we've increased diversity and more user activity, different document types. We've most certainly seen an uptick in the amount of time they're spending on the system, right? Because, so let's think about it this way, right? If you broke into a home and saw nothing, you'd walk out, right? If you you broke into a home and you saw, like, a, a safe and you saw art and you saw 
a jewelry, you sort of walk through, the, through your house to see what else is there, right? That's sort of the same canonical in our space, right? It's like, hey, I see Active Directory with all these things and identities. I see all this traffic coming out of here. I see people browsing the web. I see people doing other things of interest. I see sort of this identity around the person in this, in this machine. So let me sort of navigate through that. We've most certainly seen a lot of success in those open use cases that we can talk about easily. And the success is measured not just in the amount of time they're in, but the information that we're gathering, right? Where are they coming from? What tools are they using? What are signatures of those tools? And being able to say, okay, let's actually close that pipeline and allow uh, an analyst to actually look for those in other spaces. So that's been highly successful. Vince, this is a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, my guest has been Vince Urias, a distinguished member of the technical staff at Tendia National Laboratories. Vince, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Jason. It's been awesome talking with you today. We have to take a break. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest for this part of the show is Frank DeMinna, the Vice President of Public Sector at Splunk. Splunk is partnering with the Sandia National Laboratories on the Hades program. Hades, the High Fidelity Adaptive Deception and Emulation System. Great name, great acronym. Talk maybe a little bit about Splunk's role in Hades and, and how you guys are helping out Sandia National Lab. Sandia is a fantastic customer. We've been partnering with them for many years now, so we're excited about helping them accomplish a great, important piece of their mission here. You know, the, the challenge of cybersecurity today is, is constantly evolving, and, and to be effective in that mission requires to take a much more data-driven approach. What's exciting about what Sandia is doing here with Hades is trying to solve a, a multi-decades-old problem with the concept of honeypots. And I don't know how much how familiar you are with honeypots, but that's a technology that's been around for quite some time. I, but in my first career, I was a SOC director, and we experimented with honeypots, geez, 20 years ago. And part of the problems back then, the honeypot is a fake network designed to let your attackers try to penetrate a set of networks, a set of assets that don't have any real value so you can observe them and learn about them. And the challenge 20 years ago was making a honeypot network that felt real enough that your adversary would spend time on it. And then secondary, how do you extract value from that fake network, from that honeypot? Now, if you fast forward that concept today, there's actually quite a few more challenges, right? So, so first off, one of the goals of, a, of any type of deception technology is to give you the ability to understand the TTPs, the, the techniques, tactics, and procedures of your adversaries. So how, how do you allow your adversaries to play out their full attack spectrum without jeopardizing any of your real assets? So that's the first challenge. The second challenge is how do you interact with these adversaries over real, over, in real time so to see how they would respond to changes in your environment. 20 years ago, a honeypot was a very fixed, very preset scripted environment that you wasn't agile. You couldn't make changes to it. And if an adversary was having success or not, they might not change and pivot to a new technique. It was very fixed. It was very prescriptive. Third, how do you do all this without letting on that the adversary, to the adversary that you know you're watching them? And finally, the real technical challenge here is how do you track all of this? How do you extract value from all this data? You're generating huge amounts of information in this fake network, in this deceptive network, and you want to turn that into something that drives real actions and real insights. And that's where Splunk comes into play. 
Splunk is a software platform that is incredibly powerful at taking different sources of data, no matter what format they're in, and bringing them together to provide insights. So I'll pause there, but that's what's so exciting about this partnership with Sandia. So they're taking a decades-old problem and attacking it in a very unique and innovative way and using Splunk to help power that innovation. Great example of honeypots and exactly what I brought up to uh, Vincent when we had the conversation is, hey, this sounds like a honeypot. And he was like, well, it is, but it's even better. And I, I think that's the key is that when you use software-defined networking and virtualization, that allows you to create these fake networks in a new way that, that is no longer static but is dynamic. But that also the other problem is the data piece. How much data – give me a con compare and contrast between – a static honeypot that you were maybe setting up 20 years ago and today, what's the data challenge, that the, the difference between the two? So I'm not familiar with exactly the amount of data being generated in Hades, but I can tell you years ago we were talking about data in the megabits, and today we're talking about data in the realm of petabytes. So just that exponential increase in the amount of volume. <clears throat> and the attack service has grown as well. The amount of systems that we need to secure or potentially put up for an attack surface in any type of deceptive network is increased so much. There are systems and technologies that exist today that didn't 20 years ago. But I think the challenge is when you generate all that data and you think about the increasing attack surface is how do you connect the dots? And that's really where the innovation is happening here. The honeypot piece, like you said, has been around for a while. But what Sandia is doing is very interesting is, one, making it very adaptive that in real time their experts can go in and change that environment instead of using uh, building blocks that would take months or weeks to assemble. And then second, Splunk allows Hades to map the relationships between all the relevant parts of that, that fake network or that IT ecosystem. And essentially, that's to connect the dots. I like to use the analogy of a really messy computer desktop. So if you think about your computer desktop and you have thousands of files on it, it's really hard to find the file you want and piece them together. Now imagine that, that is now, 20 years later, millions or billions of files on your desktop. What we're effectively doing together there is giving that ability to right-click and arrange that desktop in a time series order so they can quickly go through every activity the adversary is taking and see what those activities are happening in order in, in a time-based sequence to learn from them, to share that threat intelligence, and to better protect their networks from future attacks. You mentioned they're using a specific product from Splunk. Uh, without making this uh, an advertisement, of course, get, talk, walk me through that product a little bit. Splunk is a software platform that turns big data into actions and business outcomes. And the big data industry is growing incredibly, incredibly fast. It's somewhat of a buzzword. And what Splunk does, and our mission statement, is to make machine data accessible, usable, and valuable to everyone. So where Splunk comes into play is we create a software platform called Splunk Enterprise that enables agencies to extract value from that data. And we like to refer to this as a, a reaching a state of data leverage. So that's a state where an organization is extracting real insights and real value from all their machine data that they're generating. Thousands of public sector organizations are leveraging Splunk today in pursuit of that data leverage journey, and that includes all three, all three branches of the U.S. government, all 15-level cabinet-level departments, 43 out of 50 U.S. states, and more than 750 higher, ed higher education institutions. Thanks for the explanation. It's always helpful to kind of understand where the, the technology fits in. Walk me through, so when Sandia gets the, the output from the Splunk platform, what, what do they see? What do they do with it? Can you walk me through maybe how they extract, get value out of the data? At a high level, certainly. So, you know, as I said earlier, it starts with high-precision timestamps, and that enables Sandia to, to easily sift through the logs 
to understand what the adversaries are doing and then funnel that intelligence to their, their defenders in real operational networks. So using that data harness from their deceptive network, they can extract what do we need to do in our production environment to harden it further. The usefulness of the data that traditional honeypots gather is sometimes limited to forensic research. It's not always used in a real-time environment, and that's the difference with the Hades project, that the extracted intelligence working alongside the experts at Sandia lets the defenders go after a new set of attackers that are using techniques never seen before, that are maybe um, completely unaware of in the cybersecurity community. And I often look at this as a way of taking security, uh, cybersecurity to, to the perspective of where we've gone with physical security. So the great example I like to use there is in, in old legacy environments or traditional cybersecurity environments, we're trying to understand our adversary's actions by looking at a series of uh, photographs. And by piecing together from photographs from different parts in time, what was that adversary doing? When I think of Hades and the real-time nature of that information they're, they're gathering and being able to adapt to, it's taking that old process that might have been photograph-based and turning it into a live video feed. And what I mean by that, the business outcome is fidelity. They're getting this a greater insight at a very granular and real-time level of what these attackers are doing and being able to change that environment to say, if we change this system here, how will that actor pivot? How will they respond? And that will predict future activity of other adversaries they may encounter. And at the same time, it will highlight potential holes in their network that maybe are critical vulnerabilities that have to be fixed today that they may not have seen if the attacker didn't go after that hole in the network in the, in the fake network. There's other, some other side benefits to this as well. <clears throat> that threat intelligence they could then share with their community. As you can imagine, as a national laboratory, they're under some threats that some of their peers are under. And they can use that threat intelligence to, to, to create public vaccination, to raise the immunity level of their peers that they work with and share data with so they can be protected against similar adversaries. But there's also the economic side of that. They're flipping the cost equation in favor of the vendors. So when you think about it, I was a pen tester many years ago when I was working on, on a pay-for consulting project to penetrate someone's network. We were always looking at what is the low-hanging fruit. If a network was very difficult or very time-consuming, that was very low ROI, right? Where can I get into quickly? And so the other benefit here is that they're flipping that economic equation around by making it, by having the adversary spend a lot of time on fake assets or assets that will get them nowhere, that is an opportunity cost of where they could be otherwise spent after real sensitive assets. And I love that idea here with Hades is that they're taking what is often an economic ROI problem for us on the defense side and putting that back on the attackers. One of the things we hear about is that idea of ROI when it comes to cyber, and it's been one of the, the big bugaboos when we talk about why not spend more money or why not do more with cyber and how to get people, because it's hard to say, well, because we did this, we didn't get attacked. And this sounds like this uh, pro program from Sandia is exactly doing that. They can show, listen, if we didn't close this hole that cost us X amount of dollars, this is what, it what would have happened because we see it here in, in real time. It, it, that's also what you're talking about when it comes to ROI. It's one of the hardest things for those of us who've been in cyber for a long time. It's one of the hardest things for us always to, to, to prove or demonstrate is um, if you don't fix this hole, if you don't patch this system, if you don't deploy this new technology, we are going to be impacted by an adverse event. And the challenge has always been to quantify what is the impact, the true impact of that adverse event. These type of exercises, what Hades is doing, is showing real-world scenarios of, 
hey, when this system is compromised, what are all the cascading impacts? What other systems will be at risk? To your point there, it does answer one of the, the toughest questions that have been around in cybersecurity for decades. What the Energy Department is doing is, is obviously innovative and different. From Splunk's perspective, are you seeing this in other sectors, whether it's government or banking or financial services or telecom? And then also I want to obviously talk about what else are you seeing within the government sector, but are you seeing this type of approach anywhere else yet? So we're seeing it across the board. I think the common thread here is that public sector agencies, government, higher ed institutions are always trying to be more data-driven. And so if you think about the SOC of the future, you want to reach, and I talked earlier about that state of data leverage, it's about moving up a maturity curve. So data-driven security operations is not a binary state. It's a journey. It's about, um, and, and some organizations are at various stages of that journey. What we're seeing is a interest, and Splunk is working with all of these agencies to move up that maturity stack to help them be more data-driven. And that's where we see the SOC of the future going, is to be a very analytics-driven security focus. At the end, at the, at the high end of that spectrum, you're going to see security organizations focusing on more of the higher tier events, more of the higher tier threats, and that's what Hades is doing here. It's enabling the staff and the, the smart security experts at Sandia to work on those really critical, important new threats. And then what you're going to see in those, those organizations that become more data-driven, the more low-hanging fruit or the more common type of security events, the tier one events, will be handled through automation technologies. And that will allow all those analysts to, to focus on quality issues as opposed to quantity. Frank, this has been a fascinating conversation. I guess just to, to sum up, where do you see this? You mentioned the idea of data-driven analysis is really where this is going in the future. Do you see something like Sandia opening the door for other agencies to, to borrow, to collaborate with them, to, to use their technology and, and apply it to other agencies, other parts of government, other parts of non-government sectors as well? I'll be honest. I don't think I can comment on that one. <laughs> well, that's well, a, a Sandia question. Yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. So let me let me put a finer point on it. What I was trying to get to is, do you see that this type of approach that Sandia is taking can be useful for other parts of agencies, other parts of of, of sectors, creating the the, the real time dynamic honeypot? This is not just a government thing, or not just an energy department thing. This can be this type of approach could be used anywhere. You know, going back to the theme of analytics-driven security, right, the old way of securing your infrastructure, which is a heavy focus on prevention, everyone's accepted that's not working, and it hasn't been working for some, for some time. The adversary hackers are always going to find a way in. Today, customers lead with detection strategies, but to detect, you first need to be able to get great analytics out of your systems, out of your data coming out of your SOC. And that's what Hades is doing. It's providing that next generation of analytics for them to understand their adversaries, what systems they're targeting, what takes techniques they're using. That has universal applicability to any organization today in public sector trying to accomplish a cyber mission. And it's just, again, it's a chance to move up that maturity stack and being more data-driven. And focus on the events that are really going to be the serious threats the high quality, those tier three and tier four events, and use other technologies that exist today like SOAR and automation to take care of those tier one events. Frank Demina is the Vice President of Public Sector at Splunk. Frank, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Jason. It's been a blast.
We have to take a break. I'm Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm your host, Jason Miller. In this part of the show, we switch gears and hear from Army CIO Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford. I caught up with Lieutenant General Crawford to talk about his workforce needs. General Crawford, I want to jump into workforce. I think that is really the key that underlie, underpins the network, the AI, the, the lethality of soldiers. Talk a little bit about, and, and you've talked about this before, but let's delve, delve deeper into something called blue team talent. What is that concept, and what does this mean for you guys? All right, so, so blue team talent, what you've seen, so we've got a lot of mileage out of red teams. Absolutely, there is a place for red teams. But when we start to take a look at the skill sets that are required, so we've been talking a lot about uh, the Secretary of the Army's vision, the Chief's vision, and the Army of, of 2028. Well, when we assess the skill sets, uh, as the senior signal officer, I'm responsible for what's called the CP34 IT workforce. There are about 13,600 of these employees that are spread throughout the world. I have responsibility to make sure that they are trained. And so at a time when we've got the best trained, best led, uh, best educated uh, civilian workforce probably ever. Um, as we look forward to 2028 and assess the technologies that are going to be available and bounce that against the skill sets that we have now, the as-is, what we've got to do now is there's got to be a pivot. Uh, we've now got to pivot our IT workforce to develop the skill sets that are required uh, in the next five to ten years, and that's a major effort for me. So this idea of blue team talent is an acknowledgement that the skill sets are going to be required to deliver uh, the Army, uh, the modernized Army of 2028 from an IT perspective uh, are not, the vast majority of them, I'd say about 60% of those skill sets are not resident in today's IT workforce. And so our role and a part of our job has got to be uh, to create the rheostats and the process that allows us to train uh, these uh, these employees, because I got to tell you, uh, they've been the continuity. And uh, when I think about our IT workforce and the term trusted professionals, they are the epitome of trusted professionals. So we owe them uh, the training that's required uh, to enable the Army of, of 2028. And that's the idea of blue team talent. Because when you think about red team and blue team, I automatically think of cybersecurity, yeah, right? A red team, people try to pack your network, the blue yeah. team, and try to defend. Yeah. But you're talking more broadly. This is not, this is not just cyber. Uh, this is not just cyber. This is not about penetrating networks. What we're talking about is creating a workforce uh, that's going to be required to operate and defend the networks of the future. And, and, and so uh, that, that's, that's this concept of blue team talent. Uh, we, we probably got enough red teams, and there's a place for red teams, um, but what we need to start focusing on is this race for talent. We're having conversations with industry, both defense and commercial industry. Within five minutes of every conversation, there's a discussion about the race for talent, and this is, I, I call it the race for talent. We're all looking for the same talent uh, to do some of the same things uh, here in the next five to ten years. And so we've got a great workforce uh, inside the government uh, what I owe as uh, the CIOG6 is a process that allows us to give them the skill sets that they need 
advice just to skill sets that they have. Is there one type of skill set, data scientist I hear a lot, or program manager I hear a lot, is there one that you'd say this is the most the highest priority? Well, so, so we're talking about delivering, if you can envision a network that enables weaponized autonomous vehicles on the battlefield. <laughs> that, that's a pretty broad spectrum. Exactly. There's wireless there. I talked a little earlier about 5G. Uh, I'm not so, – so industry uh, will, will – lead in this area in terms of operating in a lot of cases. But what we got to create is is leaders who can provide the oversight uh, that's required. Uh, and so there's, there's a, you know, that, that there very broad spectrum of skill sets, but absolutely more data scientists are required. Uh, absolutely those who have a deeper level of understanding of architecture. Uh, because, uh, again, back to uh, you've got to, so we can optimize data, we can secure the data, we can aggregate the data, but if you don't have a network uh, that's been optimized uh, to be able to allow you to reach back and, you know, pull that data forward or access that data, uh, then, then you, you know, you, you haven't really completed the circle. So it's those type hard science skill sets. And then the, 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 the creative thinking uh, not just strategic thinking, but you know the, the creative thinking, uh, an innovative mindset. That's something else that we've got to continue to cultivate within the workforce. The, the certification accreditation process, the, the, the authority to operate. Mm -hmm. You said there was a bit of a backlog that developed as you guys moved from DICAP. Yeah, to from 2015 to, to, to now. Yeah. So we've been able to reduce that backlog uh, that developed as, as a part of the, the whole certification and accreditation part. But what we'd like to do is I want to move from, okay, so move from reducing backlog to really get after what we're looking for, which is examining the process understanding what work has been done inside the IC and others who are innovating in this space, to include getting feedback from commercial and defense industry because they've definitely got opinions on on some policy uh, changes that, that need to be made uh, that have to do with RMF. And then, you know, automating as much as we can, as fast as we can. And uh, so I'm not, I don't want to try and boil the ocean, but what I really like to do is iterate mm -hmm. so that Six months from now, 12 months from now, we got a better process than what we have today. So have you been able to get that backlog down to a place where you're comfortable a and there's not major systems that you're going, oh, you know, giving right. you a headache? <laughs> right, right. So so we've been able to reduce the backlog, but it was muscle. Yeah. Uh, we had to muscle it. We, oh, yeah. we, we had to manually do a lot of things. And so we got to ask ourselves, is that the way of the future, uh, that we want to, you know, manually do this? Or do we want to uh, develop a better actual process? And, so what do we do? This is the process we have, not the one we need. Uh, so we've got to evolve this process, which means you've got to talk to people. And uh, I think the services are doing a real good job, and there's some round wheels out there that we can grab to get after this. And we're not just starting. Uh, there's a pilot uh, that actually started in October uh, that will end in March, uh, April time frame. I believe it's April that we, we took on inside the Army to be able to automate uh, the RMF process, the pieces of RMF that we can automate, leveraging discussions with the IC and discussions with others. And so more to follow on how this pans out. But this is what I want to use, this particular pilot, to inform kind of the next steps that we take in automating the RMF process. That's all the time we have for today. You just heard from Army CIO Lieutenant General Bruce Crawford. Earlier in the show, you heard about a new cyber program called Hades from Vincent Urias, a distinguished member of the technical staff at Sandia National Laboratories, and Frank Domena, the vice president of public sector at Splunk. I'm Jason Miller, and you've been listening to Ask the CIO on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Hey, electrical contractors, I'm Matt from ABB. Are rising costs and product delays keeping you up at night? We can help you contractor better. ABB's contractor resources are designed to help you increase productivity and profitability on your commercial construction projects. Check out Contractor Better today. Visit go.abb slash contractor better.